You're listening to Road to Resilience. I'm John Earl. Today on the podcast, my guest is Karenna Gore. She is director of the Center for Earth Ethics at Union Theological Seminary here in New York City. And like her dad, former Vice President Al Gore, she's an environmentalist. But what I find really interesting about her is her focus. It's not so much on the specific policy solutions to climate change, but on what she says is the deep mindset that explains how and why we find ourselves in the climate crisis we do. She also talks about the change that needs to take place in order for us to be resilient in the face of climate change. So we're going to talk about all of that, and we're going to talk about her journey from being passive to now active. And lastly, we're going to talk about hope, because there's a lot of reasons to be despairing right now, and she has some really good reasons to be hopeful. So here's Karana Gore. I hope you enjoy the conversation. Karana, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. So your path to environmental activism is not a straight one. Right. And you trained as a lawyer. Um, you worked on your father, Al Gore's presidential campaign. You wrote a book about women reformers in history. You had three children. Um, how did you come to discover that climate activism was your calling? Well, first of all, thank you so much for having me on the podcast. It's really wonderful to be here. And in answer to your question, uh, there were certain things that predisposed me to being interested in climate and environmental activism. I did grow up around talk about what was called global war warming and um, then climate change, now climate crisis, climate emergency. But I myself didn't take that on as something that was my mission or my work until... I was at Union, and we had the opportunity to convene religious leaders from around the world to reframe climate change as a moral issue and galvanize faith-based activism around it. And I made a lot of the connections um, for myself personally that made it obvious that this was the work that I should go into. Were there specific moments? I mean, when you were, whether in your travels or in your encounters with other people, where it, it hit you maybe for the first time that this is so serious that I need to be spending all my time or my professional life on it? I think what really uh, enabled me to kind of get it, that moment of really understanding, was really an analysis of how, uh, in so many ways, the destructive systems um, that have also enabled racial injustice and poverty um, are, in fact, so ingrained in belief systems and ways of thinking. Um, things like measurements, understanding that when we measure and evaluate the health of our society from uh, metrics such as GDP, uh, it's perversely related to ecological destruction. So it doesn't measure pollution, doesn't measure depletion of resources, doesn't measure inequality. So once I, I understood that and then listening to the political discourse where it's all about economic growth and those things are not mentioned, it clicked in a new way that no wonder we're in this mess. If this is how we're measuring things, um, it makes sense. And then that kind of explained to me why the trust that I had that the systems would somehow solve this was very misplaced mm. and that something really more radical needed to happen if we were going to actually uh, be able to get beyond it. So in other words, it goes way beyond the technocratic solutions of our, you know, carbon tax or not, how much, et cetera. What you're trying to do is get to the bedrock of this. How do we live on this earth? Exactly. So you mentioned GDP. If you were in charge of all the major cable networks, what is the index or the number by which you would 
um, judge the success of our country? First of all, I think we should look not just at human beings. I do think we should look at biodiversity and the health of our our forests, of our populations of insects. Um, these are companions in a life system with interdependency in ways that we don't even totally understand. I also think that we should look at rates of anxiety, depression, suicide, and life expectancy because it seems as if we have had a rise in these things at the same time that, you know, maybe there's been more products sold. After all, people do turn to all kinds of products uh, and, and things in the marketplace in order to try to fill that um, need to feel better when there's a fundamental imbalance uh, going on emotionally and mentally. So I think looking to, to those rates would be important. Of course, there have been countries like Bhutan who've tried the gross national happiness. Mm -hmm. um, there are also, there is- What do you think of that? I think, you know, it, I, I won't go into it in depth in part because I'm really not an expert, um, but I think it's the right idea. I think some some way in which we can talk about and, and measure well-being is important. There are, um, and this is another uh, benefit of having been in dialogue with some indigenous communities who are um, questioning the development paradigm. Mm -hmm. well, how do they measure their well-being? Well, there is... Having clean air, clean water, uh, having food, having community and culture intact. So let's say let's get in a time machine and we'll go to 20 years in the future, 30 years in the future. And let's say best case scenario that um, we've changed. Our mindsets are changing. We're adopting more of a, a quality of life metric for the success of our civilization. How is it going to be tangibly different? Well, I think for one thing, um, we will be seeing that the basic human needs, they have been called original instructions by some indigenous peoples, uh, have to do with uh, taking care of, of children and family and community and culture. So time spent doing that, although it might not be uh, monetized and commodified and paid, will be valued so that people will be spending more time uh, with their families and their, and their communities in that way. Um, there would be less waste. I mean, we live in what Pope Francis in his encyclical Laudato Si calls the throwaway culture. Um, and this is really recent, uh, actually. I mean, it's in the past decades when it's become so common, and particularly in an urban lifestyle, as we're in here in New York City, to just throw things out all day long. We would have reusable um, containers. People would sit and have food together and cups of coffee or whatever together with sitting down, taking the time instead of just taking everything to go and throwing it out quickly while you're on your phone distracted by something else, there would be more of a sense of presence and, um, and less that kind of loop of just production, consumption, production, consumption, which of course powers the economy, mm -hmm. but it doesn't make people happy in mm. the end. I want to go back to sort of what we started touching on, which was politics. So you've worked in politics, you've spent a lot of time around politics, um, and I'm struck by the failure of politics, not only in the United States, but in other countries uh, around the world. It seems like nobody has taken up this challenge. Um, nobody has, for example, reduced carbon by the amount that we all have to, scientists say. Um, so 
how do you explain the failure of politics? And what are your thoughts on what to do next? I would point to a couple things. One is uh, the role of money in politics. There um, is just a cycle and a system whereby people who are running for office and in office as incumbents are taking uh, donations to for their political campaigns that influence what they prioritize. Then I think it's also perceptions that come from communications. So we live in a communications ecosystem in which a uh, few things have happened. For one thing, there's been that kind of blending of news and entertainment. And oftentimes what is reported on, and particularly in the 24-hour news cycle, isn't actually the issues to do with the policies and laws that are going to make a difference to people. Hmm. Um, so those are a couple of things that I've noticed. And there is, I, I do believe that there's going to be a big change because it does seem as if uh, younger generations are intolerant of some of the nonsense. Mm -hmm. some, um, and even where climate change reporting is concerned, that for so long this has been not covered in part because they say it's too scary, it's too depressing. Do you see the generational change in your kids? You have three kids. I do. I have three kids. Uh, they're 20, 18, and 13. I I do see I do see the generational change in in my children um but I I think like most parents I don't really look at them and go you're a representative of your generation I am more in my they're all three so different mm -hmm. and so you know there's that going on as well and I think that it's also important in parenting to understand the role that we play in not just preparing them for the, the losses and stresses that their world will experience, but also really uh, preparing them to lead in a and live Wait, in a different I want to linger on that first point, the losses and stresses, because mm -hmm. there's a resilience component in that. Oh, yes. How do you prepare them? What does that look like, preparing them for that? Well, first of all, we must acknowledge that there's a, an element of privilege and inequity um, with regard to climate impacts. And so... Um, when you educate your kids about values, uh, I think to connect to more vulnerable communities and to make sure that that point of contact is understood to be an important uh, connection is part of it. The other thing is to prepare for the fact that the way that we're all that, that many people are living now is a kind of make believe. Um, that's not going to last. Mm -hmm. There's not going to be endless sort of, if, if for those in a more high-consuming privileged sector, uh, flights all around yeah. to vacation. This is a party that's going to end. Yeah. I, I often will bring up my grandparents because we are connected to a time that was quite different. They didn't live this way, no matter what socioeconomic sector you were in. Um, and so to, to sort of be that bridge also, that you mm. can remember what it was like for your grandparents and transmit it to your own children, I think is important. Um, but there's something that a, a friend of mine said from his value system, which is it's not just the earth that we're leaving to our children, it's what children are we leaving to our earth. <laughs> and so I think that's also important, which is to, to say connect to your watershed, to the pay attention to the sunrise and the moon. Mm. Um, just reconnect because there's actually 
a lot of strength in that to try to sync back up with our natural systems that we live mm -hmm. in instead of actually um, ignoring what this beautiful uh, planet uh, to try to to use those opportunities. So even in New York City, you can pay attention to the sunrise. You can go greet the Hudson River and think about water if you want. It's a choice and it can affect your consciousness if you do it. What does resilience look like in the context of climate change? Sometimes people talk about climate change in terms of these a two-pronged approach. We have to have adaptation and mitigation. How do you um, mitigate the problem, stop, stop it at its source, and how do we adapt to it? And because of the politics around it, um, some people are much more comfortable saying, oh, we just have to adapt. It doesn't matter um, exactly what's causing it. This is the new reality, mm, and we need to adapt to that it. sort of thing. Yeah. Okay, so we can't do it that way because there's nothing to adapt to if we don't deal at the level of cause. In some ways, this is a crisis of cause and effect and not us not seeing the relationship correctly or not wanting to. So we have to understand with resilience that um, if we don't deal at the level of cause and stop uh, what is happening with the climate pollution, there is no endpoint to adapt to. There is no uh, resilience standard that can meet what is coming. Mm -hmm. We have to do both. So resiliency is, of course, important for any for the communities that are going to go through stronger storms, heat waves, droughts, influx of, of migrants. We also have to obviously prepare so that we have buildings that can withstand these things, so that we have storm surge precautions and, and the like, and so that we do we're ready emotionally um, and psychologically in these communities to anticipate and absorb what's going to happen. However, that shouldn't take focus off of mitigating and stopping the trajectory we're on. I, I sometimes think about telling my kids about the Amazon rainforest. There was once this thing that you wouldn't believe. How old are your kids? I don't actually don't have kids. Okay. <laughs> I'm just thinking someday. Yeah. Um, it's there's it's no, yeah, sad. Th there's, there's, there's no recovering from the loss of something like that. I think that dealing with grief and loss is part of this. People need to go through that, obviously, in communities where they've been devastated firsthand, even more so. Um, but everyone, as we share this planet, uh, the Great Barrier Reef is another one, um, corals dying off, uh, all, all of, of this beauty and wonder that can't be recreated. Mm. Um, I think we do have to allow ourselves to feel that. Um, and channel whatever grief and anger also comes up um, because there's energy in it and, um, and we need that energy to press back against it. And if you think about the people that were um, fighting for abolition of slavery and what was going on then mm -hmm. and what they were, the horrors that, that, that were, were happening, um, that it was, not, uh, it was not fuel to give up. It was fuel to fight back. And yeah. I think we have to have some faith that if we align ourselves with our values and we do everything we can, that there will be, um, of course, a better result than if we don't. Hmm. And maybe that is all we can hope for. So you, you wrote this book in 2006. Yes. Um, called, remind me, Lighting, Lighting the, the Way, Way, Nine Women Who Changed Modern America. Um, so you have studied, you know, reformers of the past. And I'm wondering what, lessons you learned from those books from that book and even if there are if there are specific lessons in tactics in mentality or if there are moments from those biographies where that you think back to um kind of in your everyday life that inspire you i 
am very inspired still reading about stories of people who were in movements, whether it's um, civil rights or some of the early public health movements, um, who were uh, very much against all odds of power and money on the other side, and nonetheless um, were perseverant and uh, brave in terms of uh, being comfortable with dissent from the system the way that it was, putting themselves on the line, and especially for those that weren't driven by ego or fame or money uh, to build movements from the ground up to change things. So Ida B. Wells Barnett was the first woman that I wrote about in my book, and she was um, working against lynching as a black woman in the South. And of course, her life was threatened all the time. And um, she said the way to right wrongs is to shine the light of truth upon them and was just very much devoted to truth. And so did the research, did the publication of the facts around uh, lynching and spoke out and just bravely um, traveled and also was back in her home community to shine that light. And her work made a big difference. Don't you, you read those stories and you're like, oh, geez, could I do that? Mm-hmm. I'm like, that sounds really scary. Do you, what is your comfort zone like and how do you push yourself to go outside of it? Well, that's an interesting question. I don't, I don't consider myself, um, you know, a paragon example of 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 an activist. I, there are many others who I I admire and am awe, uh, in awe of. I will say that I think there are things that you can feel particularly called to um, participate in. It's not that it's better or worse than anything else, but for some reason it matches who you are and what you have to contribute. And I think in a time where there is so much going on, there's there's rising movements of, of dissent and uh, appropriately confrontational in many cases. There are times in which uh, you it's difficult for people to participate in everything. Um, and so just to be able to be abreast of what's happening and to support those who who match with the moment in a way that they put themselves on the line and just what, whether it's signing a petition or even just saying something around your dinner party or at a, at a cocktail reception where you are voicing why this, why this is great, Mm. you know, is, is actually a, a, a mode of movement building using your own voice in those situations, because many people just aren't talking about this. You said a moment ago that even, you know, mentioning it at a dinner party, uh, just talking about climate change is, uh, an important positive step. And I completely agree with you. But it it seems like there's a four alarm fire and we should be banging down the doors of Congress or wherever. Mm-hmm. Um, Is it five alarms or four alarms? How many, how, how whatever many, the, the maximum number alarms? of alarms are, we are at <laughs> yeah. that level. Um, and I'm struck, and I completely include myself in this category of the, the relative inaction of well-meaning people. I'm curious about your thoughts on that and on how someone goes from uh, passive to active. Well, first of all, I think I think in every situation, obviously, I mean, people will hearken back to Nazi Germany or uh, abolitionism or what the South was like during Jim Crow. In every one of these situations, of course. Uh, what I can't remember the quote, what evil needs to triumph is good people doing nothing, um, is the case. And it's very, we're so- social creatures. It's very natural that people um, t- 
tend to want to uh, stay in the fold of their um, their flock of of people and not be uh, disruptive. However, what it takes for social change is to do that. So, I think um, though in the case of the climate situation, we there's another factor, which is this fear of hypocrisy. You know, if you're going to speak out against this, how come you're still driving a car with gasoline? And that is something that, um, you know, w- there's been progress on people saying, look, we have to do both. We have to have individual changes and we have to have systemic changes. But systemic changes are more important. I mean, that's what's going to it's ultimately going to take. So first, I, I think we do have to deal with that that issue and make people understand that um, there doesn't need to be a lot of finger pointing and blaming around individual behavior. That's a very good thing to do, but but we need to be able to speak out about the system without attacking each other on that level. And I think in terms of, I mean, your question is about the inertia. It's both about the inertia, but also the journey to activism. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like, how does that take place? I think... T- the first step is talking to people who are already there. Already affected. Either either people who are, um, I mean, okay, what's driving climate crisis is pollution that um, also at its source level in terms of where these coal uh, mines and, and oil pipelines are and the like natural gas compressor stations um, are it creates ambient pollution that affects people people's health right around them. There's this notion of sacrifice zones because so often these toxic facilities are placed in low-income communities and communities of color. And uh, one very powerful part of this movement is that if you connect with the people in these places who are resisting that because of the immediate impact on their water and air and health. Mm. It gets you to another level of urgency, human connection, and you can stand with those people. I was able to go join the prayer camp in Standing Rock when there was that standoff um, conflict uh, between the native, the Standing Rock Sioux and their allies and the Dakota Access Pipeline. And, um, of course, that pipeline was built. However... The movement of people, the way they came together, galvanized uh, the climate movement in a really big way. One way is even um, language and how we talk and think about it. For example, the, uh, the Native people there were saying, we're not protesters, we're protectors. We're water protectors. And now you will hear that a lot in other um, in other cases where we're we're water protectors, and it takes away what often people try to set up as this kind of culture war. Oh, they're just angry protesters because, in fact, that is what we are. So there are the, there are ways that this accrues and builds positive momentum even when you have those temporary losses. Um, I have to ask you about your dad. So your dad, Al Gore, is probably the best known environmentalist. Another term I think we should retire. In America. Um, but if I understand correctly, your focus is a little bit more on spirituality and morality than his. Um, is First, is that accurate? And secondly, when the two of you sit down, let us be a fly on the wall. What does that conversation sound like? What do you talk about when you talk about environmental issues or what needs to be done? Well, I... First of all, I have a lot of respect as well as love for my father and gratitude to him for the work that he's done and... Um, for being a good father. 
his the book first book that he wrote on this topic earth in the balance the subtitle was ecology and the human spirit and he does talk about belief systems and and um spirituality in that book so it's he has thought about that and expressed it um he now works some in the private sector. He's very interested in creating uh, investments in a whole robust economic um, sector for renewable, clean energy, for regenerative agriculture. Um, that's something that he has a lot of hope for and puts puts energy behind. So um, I think if there's a disagreement, it's probably around um, how important market-based approaches are and um, I would say that I have some reservations because the the marketplace seems to be have so much waste and so much inequity, and there seem to be so many things that if it doesn't get to the root of the problem, it just repeats it in a different mm-hmm. form. Whereas I think he feels a lot of optimism about the ability of the markets to respond quickly, even quicker than a, a government mandate could. And he often uses the example of cell phones, that nobody had any idea how quickly that would explode. Right. Are you hopeful? Well, I'm, I'm, I, I know there's, I want to say there's the difference between hope and optimism. So I am, I am hopeful in the sense that, um, and I would say there's an element of, of faith in that because I, I do believe that um, where you align yourself and what you hold on to has power itself. So um, to go to a negative place would be to drag us further in the wrong direction. And we all have a responsibility, I think, to try to align with what's possible mm. and not dwell. It's almost like hope is necessary. Hope is necessary. I'm alarmed for sure. And I think, you know, it'll be it's interesting hearing uh, and speaking with medical professionals because so often people use analogies from health, from from doctors, from do you tell a patient they have a terminal illness? I mean, obviously you do, right? That's what we should probably be doing now, right, for planetary health. But if so, um, does that inspire behavior change more quickly? Or would somebody say, oh, you know what, well, just forget about it then. I'm just going (laughs) to pedal to the metal. Um, I think the insights... Um, from the medical professionals are much needed in this, not just for what the exact impacts of heat stress and disease vectors are, but for how we talk about it and confront it. Because there is a, um, a mental health component to this at the level of cause. When If we have to do an autopsy on the planet, whoever would do that, they would have to say, how did people not stop? How did human society not figure this out and stop? Hmm. And look at the exact nature of our perceptions right now and why we couldn't forward it. So I I really, um, and addiction is another factor. I'm hearing denial. I think addiction is is, is delusional thinking. Yes. And so, and, and as in the field of addiction, where many people have experienced help through um, AA, which does include spirituality, we can't ignore um, these components of the human experience when we're dealing with a problem this great. So I, I really look forward to learning more from the insights of the medical and health community about how to, to deal with this and how to um, make hope 
uh, a reasonable thing to have. <laughs> Karina, thank you so much for being with us. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Thanks so much. That's all for this episode of Road to Resilience. The podcast is a production of the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai. It's produced by me, John Earle, Katie Ullman, and Nikki Hudson. Our executive producers are Dory Clesis and Lucia Lee. From all of us here, thank you so much for listening, and we'll see you in a couple weeks.